On air, online, on digital, digital. and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, a wake-up call to apple growers and their marketing. What we don't do effectively as a country is export apples. We only export 1% to 2% of our apples overseas. We've got to get better as a country at value-adding to our fruit and vegetables, and we've got to get better at marketing our fruit and vegetables to the world. And teaching students more about a career in agriculture. Farmer Time is an international program that's based on the concept of a virtual farm tour. So wherever you are in the classroom, you can engage with a producer or anyone along the supply chain. We've got this product which allowed us to get into the classrooms even though students couldn't go on an excursion. Yes, more help in the classroom for teachers and students to learn more about agriculture and a possible career in the sector. Plus more thoughts on the apple industry following that decision to allow imports of apples from the USA into Australia. Are we good at selling our apples to the world? That story coming up. G'day, Tony, with you on this midweek Wednesday, which means Richard Bailey will be along to check the livestock markets in the second half of the program. And, of course, a check on the weather coming up at the halfway stage. Now, you might have some thoughts on the import of American apples and the effect it could have on the local industry, not only with growers possibly losing markets, but with the biosecurity threats as well. Let us know your thoughts on 0438 0438 is that number. And that's where we begin today's country hour. The United States has been given the green light to send fresh apples to Australia after more than 20 years of lobbying. It is a blow for local growers who say the US growers have a much lower cost of production. Growers from the US Pacific Northwest will be subject to strict biosecurity procedures set out by Australia's Federal Department of Agriculture. Tasmania's big organic apple grower Andrew Smith says it's bad news for local growers who are struggling to make a dollar in the current market. It's not a complete surprise to us. We'd uh, been informed by APAL, Apple and Pear Australia Limited, for some time that the um, decision was pending and that we should expect the worst. And obviously the worst has come. It's probably a little worse than we thought. We thought there might be some protocol around biosecurity issues. But my understanding at this stage, after ringing around this morning, is that basically they're letting certainly from the Pacific Northwest, the United States apples in Hollis Bolas. Yes, so Pacific Northwest is the area that it says in this report. Um, and the final report identifies 20 quarantine pests associated with apples from this area that require risk management measures. Is there any that you're particularly worried about? Well, of course, fire blight is the one big pest that, and the global pest that Australia at this stage is fire blight free, and that's the one that we're trying to protect. And we'd like to see uh, rigid protocol measures enforced. Um, but basically, we've been horse traded out of those negotiations. It looks like, and now we're going to get counter seasonal production into Australia in an apple market that's been a declining market for the last 40 years and currently is oversupplied probably hasn't been profitable for most producers in Australia for the last two seasons because of climatic conditions and and oversupply. And now uh, absolutely no prospect of seeing opportunistic growth in the market or 
or the opportunity for people to be profitable through gaps in the market because it's quite simply going to be full with a cheaper producing country. So it's been, uh, it has been pretty tough over the last few years and the market's been contracting. Uh, Fiona, the market's been contracting since the day I was born. I've never seen a growth in the industry. I've seen more trees go in the ground and more production go in the ground, which has driven us for more efficiency and and just constantly survival of the fittest. But uh, in 1986, when I started in this business, there was 2,000 SKUs in a supermarket, so we only had 1,999 competitors. Now there's 100,000 SKUs and we have 999,999 competitors and the consumption of apples has been on the decline in that whole time domestically. And obviously you're growing organic apples, so same in that market? Pacific Northwest is a fantastic um, place to grow fruit. They have two seasons. They have uh, uh, winter, which it snows and can be frozen, but in summer it, they have no summer rainfall and 24 degrees every single day. Perfect um, apple growing. Perfect apple growing weather with an abundant workforce uh, at a very competitive cost of production. And from our perspective, a Pacific Northwest grower can uh, land a carton of apples with freight to Brisbane for about a dollar thirty, a dollar forty um, per carton. It costs us ten dollars a carton to get it from Tasmania, based on Australian wages. Ten dollars to get it interstate, you mean, or? Just freight, just freight, wow. that's roll on. So after it leaves our pack house, onto the Spirit uh, and, and onward to Brisbane, uh, you know, a highly paid Australian truck driver who has a house and puts his kids through a nice school as opposed to a Filipino labour force on an international shipping line uh, where the Filipino lives on the ship and gets paid nothing. So this comes down to sort of wages and, and work standards and all that sort of thing, which in the United States you're saying they can... They really aren't up to the standards of Australia? Well, the rest of the world's not up to the standard of Australia. And um, from an apple growing perspective or just a business perspective, can I say uh, that I just feel like uh, we've been sold down the river. Uh, We're employing Australians. We're paying tax in Australia. We're paying fair wages. uh, We're creating opportunity for people in our business. And we now uh, have to compete with counter-seasonal production with people that have a strategic advantage in all those areas. And we enjoy creating opportunity and doing what we do. Uh, but I can tell you, my local member, um, I wouldn't wail, lay awake at night waiting for my vote in the next election. Yep, so pretty unhappy with this decision. is it? But this is something that's been coming on for a little while. So is it this government, is it last government, or is it politicians in general don't understand the, the ramifications? If you have a look around the world today, Fiona, Trade and trade negotiations are the new weapon in, in wars and conflict around the world. Uh, most other countries in the world are negotiating to their advantage and the advantage of the domestic population that they live in. We have just been completely sold down the river. In trade negotiations. No mm. In trade negotiations. I don't know what we've been horse traded for, but in a market that is oversupplied currently, where the people that are employing people and paying tax in this country aren't making any money, we've obviously been horse traded for something because it's not something that is looking after the consumer because they've been short a product. What do you think the future of initially Tasmania's apple industry is when you're up against all these things? Oh, well, the future of the industry has always been under pressure. 
Yeah, there's a 30% decline in fruit growers in this country right now. So there's trees being pulled out of the ground as we speak. The industry is and has been in demise. And unless you've differentiated or got a very, very loyal customer for your product and a healthy brand to prop it up, um, you are already living off the equity in your land value. So this is just making a very, very difficult situation, uh, you know, increasingly worse. What about you, uh, Andrew Smith, down there in Lucaston in southern Tasmania? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I'm a survivor and uh, adapt, improvise and overcome. But as you can hear by the tone in my voice, uh, I'm pretty disappointed that Australia is not supporting Australians. Uh, ultimately, it will be the consumer's supporting Australian businesses that will help us get through this. But it would be bloody fantastic to have some political support when we are the people that are paying the taxes that are helping build the budget to make this country a great place to live. Andrew Smith, Managing Director of r Smith Orchardist down in the Huon Valley, talking there to Fiona Breen about the US being giving the OK to send fresh apples into Australia. I like that motto, adapt, improvise, overcome. A uh, big bit to overcome at the moment. Uh, Gillian at, or Gillian at Sanford says, what a dodgy deal. What sort of a dodgy deal has been done to let unnecessary US apples in? Probably full of pesticides, also the risk of bringing in disease. Terrible idea. Need to lobby the government to stop them from coming into the state. Well, talking about the government, the Federal Assistant Trade Minister, Tim Ayres, has told Mel Bush apple growers in Australia need to get better at exporting their produce to the world. He believes the biosecurity protocols in place will protect the local apple growers if US apples come to Australia. There's two big things that we've got to make sure that we follow through here. The first one uh, is making sure that we continue to apply our very strict biosecurity rules to apple imports from anywhere around the world. Now, this, this, is, a, this, is, uh, this is a key point here. Only three states in the United States uh, are the subject of this ruling, uh, we, we are going to apply the same rules that we apply to apples from New Zealand or any other country. The Australian apple industry is very strong. It's, it's one of its key strengths is its uh, disease-free status. Is there going to be any assistance for those growers uh, who leave the industry being affected by these imports? Oh, the, the, uh, growers will not leave the industry uh, as, as a result of this ruling. Uh, we, we, we have a very strong... Uh, Apple sector. Uh, It is protected by strong biosecurity rules and the preferences uh, of Australian consumers. There's a tiny percentage of overseas apples uh, in the market. This won't make much of a difference. What we we don't do effectively as a country is is export apples. We only export 1% to 2% of our apples overseas. Uh, We've we've got to get better as a country at value-adding to our fruit and vegetables, and we've got to get better at marketing our fruit and vegetables to the world. Um, we we are we. I am very confident. Just that, to that, very... that as a result of this ruling, there will be very few. You know, very little will change. But what it is is it, is it's a reminder that our biosecurity rules are really important, and we've got to got to get better as a as an industry, as a country, as a sector, 
in fighting for access uh, to overseas markets for our apple growers and the rest of our exit. That's Federal Assistant Trade Minister Tim Ayres talking there to Mel Bush about the approval for American apple growers to send their apples to Australia, saying to uh, apple growers they need to do more to export their apples to markets overseas. Well, here on Valley Apple Grower, Andrew Scott is one fruit grower who's had a lot of success exporting his crop. He says the hard work getting into the markets overseas is worth it for the returns. We're small, uh, small-scale exporters, I guess, compared to what was once the norm out of Tasmania. But we've managed to keep the dream alive, if you like, and and uh, you know we've exported something every year out of Tasmania, which has had its challenges, particularly when the dollar went uh, north of parity with the US. Okay, now what sort of markets and how many markets are you going into? Yeah, currently just Hong Kong. Um, we we still do have access in the past you know in the past decade I guess we've uh, done quite a bit of work in China, in the mainland China, uh, Hong Kong currently we are also um, you know we still uh, theoretically have access to Japan out of Tasmania and we are looking at how we can um, you know quite a bit of effort being undertaken at the moment to look at how we can make that a commercially viable option. How much of your produce does go to Hong Kong? Currently now, uh, probably uh, 15% of our produce would, would, would be exported. 15 to 20%, I guess, would be a fair comment. Um, we, we, you know, look, we, you know, I guess I've, you know, I've, I've had the benefit of growing up in a uh, in a, a, a very viable export industry out of Tasmania. So we know what's possible. With, uh, I guess, with all the changes that have under, been undertaken in the last. Yeah, a couple of decades in, in in Australia, we've managed to keep that uh, that dream alive, and hopefully one day it'll it'll work towards it coming back to that. Um, there are there are other growers this year uh, have done quite a bit of export out of Tasmania, and we we're now growing varieties, I guess that um, that our markets want to buy overseas. Okay, what sort of markets could you look at into the future? Now, I know a lot of growers are in Bangkok for Fruit Logistica. What sort of mar- uh, markets should they be looking at? No doubt about it. The trend is is toward the Asian markets. We we are changing our varietal structures to grow larger, sweeter fruit for those markets, which is what they demand. And also, um, you know, apples that can put up with that sea voyage. It takes about four weeks from the time we we put them in a carton in Tasmania till they land um, in, in the markets themselves in, in, into their end destination. So then they've got to be distributed, pulled out of the, the shipping containers, distributed around the relevant supermarkets or wet markets wherever they're, they're going. Do you have much opposition overseas uh, with those markets? Is it hard to get into those markets in the first place? Definitely. My word, you know, trade negotiations are... Um, have been, uh, you know, they are a challenge in themselves, very hard to get into, and particularly the affluent, affluent markets that can afford to to purchase fruit from a place like Tasmania. We're a high-cost producer because we're, we're of, um, you know, our high input costs, but the the what we do what we do so well and we we manage to sell well overseas is is the the branding of Tasmania and and, and we can back that brand and that's really important. It's not we don't just say, uh, you know, that we're clean and green and all this sort of stuff. You've got to be able to prove that. Are you getting the returns that um, that you need to do the export to Hong Kong? Uh, yes. Yeah, no, no, you know, certainly the dollar coming back to where it is now under seventy cents. That's been a you know that's a major help. Uh, like everything, global shipping's um, increased. You know, shipping internal shipping in in uh, and freight within Australia is, you know, is extreme at the moment, abhorrent. But um, 
you know, there's a lot of lot of industries that are feeling feeling that sort of that pressure. But yeah, no, it's 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 very it's if you can do the job right, have the right variety, and your chain your chain of uh, uh, supply is correct. Yes, it can be a very viable option. What's the difference with what you get from the domestic market compared to what you're getting from the export market? Obviously, you've got to offload the rest of those apples to the domestic market. Yeah, yep, that's it. So the difference, what's the difference? Well, it's, it's. I, I guess, you know, we need to move fruit out of Australia. Like, uh, there's, you know, for a population point of view, I guess, there's a, there's a big market out there. There's, you, we, we're limited by population in Australia, what we can produce far more than what we can consume here. So, and, you know, I guess in a lot of the domestic work we do is small lines um, of fruit into, into specialist outlets, if you like, whereby when we export fruit, we, you know, it's our opportunity to fill trucks and, uh, and off they go, fill 40-foot containers and off they go. We, you know, we face big challenges from all the Southern Hemisphere producers, uh, you know, our neighbours in New Zealand, Chile are a huge apple supplier, um, but we try to target a different market, if you like the specialty market. And with the prospect of US apples coming into Australia, will that make you more determined to find new markets as well? Well, look, you know, it's more volume, isn't it, in, a, in, a, in what is a limited market. So it's um, for sure. Like we, we've, we've certainly got to be able to uh, find and maintain those links to export more fruit. You know, it wasn't so long ago Australia did a, a huge amount of, you know, out of Tasmania in particular, we exported huge volumes of fruit into India, places like that, Sri Lanka. You know, changes in global shipping, all that sort of thing has affected have affected that and in, in, and tariffs into those countries. So that's that's all part of the, I guess, you know, where we work with uh, the DAF, Department of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries, and and trade uh, in, into negotiating those tariffs with the relevant countries to try and bring them down. If the US apples do come into Australia, what do you think that'll do to the local industry? Um, look, it's, look, no doubt about it. More, it's more fruit. Uh, creates more pressure. It's a supply and de- demand industry, like m- most of agriculture is. Um, so, yeah, if there's more supply, if it's at a cheaper price, that you know, that affects the pricing, and then it, it affects viability of some producers, um, well, of all producers. And um, you know, so you know, change happens, um, and and the way it goes. But we we certainly, at, you know, so so it's going to create cost pressure at the end of the day. Hewan Valley apple grower Andrew Scott on his export program of apples to Hong Kong. Uh, Will has uh, his unique take on what's happening on the text line, 0438922936. Will says, level playing field? Question mark. Yes, we've been bulldozed. Thank you for that, Will. 0438922936, that number. And another text, uh, this one from Leslie. Let's build a movement to only buy Tasmanian apples. Leslie from Ambleside. Thank you for that, Leslie. Um, Coming up, we shall listen to a fruit wholesaler who has some thoughts on this issue of uh, bringing US apples into Australia. November on the ABC is Oz Music Month. Celebrate Australian music every day, all month. Oh my God, I keep stepping it up and I'm putting on fires in the middle of the night. The rock, so you studied psychology, folk, the country, the dance, the pop, so I guess the stuff about the Bridgewater Jerry. Oz Music, all November me. on ABC Radio Hobart. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. 
you love to hear your thoughts if you uh, saw an apple in the supermarket and we came from America. Would that worry you? Would that concern you at all? Oh four three eight nine double two nine three six. I know we buy plenty of American uh, fruit, nuts, walnuts, uh, plenty of American cherries when uh, there's no cherry season here, and uh, also other goods like dates and uh, yeah, lots of other things. So. Would that worry you? They've been trying to get the apples into Australia for 20 years and now it looks like they've been given the green light. 0438922936. We heard from the growers there. What about the sellers? Fred Pezzamenti is the operations manager at Melbourne Wholesale Simply Fresh Fruit, which focuses on local produce. He says the business will try to steer clear of US apples, but I believe supermarkets will leap at the chance of securing cheaper produce. It won't have much of an impact for us because we... Deal. We like to deal with local seasonal products and our customers demand that. That seems to be the new trend where chefs and people like to use local uh, produce that, uh, that they can speak about and that they've got origins of. Um, so I don't think it'll be a big part of our sales um, because that's the sort of customers that we do and that's how we like to operate. We like to operate with local and uh, seasonal product. In terms of other wholesalers, maybe some of the bigger ones, um, do you think that this these US apples could cause a bit of a dent in the Australian market? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it can. As I, as I was sort of talking before, that I think um, the, the one part of the industry that's going to sort of dominate things will, will be the um, the supermarkets. So the the, the Woolworths and the Coles chains. Um, if they get it at a price, and if the public, you know, demand it because it's got a price, or you know, they they market it strongly to the public, and and, and you know, the, they'll always draw a crowd, and they'll always draw the, the public in. Depends on then how loyal the Australian people are to to the local product compared to the American product. But sometimes it will be price driven. Um, and I mean the same with us. If if one of my customers asks specifically for one of the varieties, because we don't know what sort of varieties they're going to be, um, from the American market, then I will, you know, try to talk him out of it. But if he, if that's what he demands, then I'll have to source it and and deliver it, um, which is unfortunate. But yeah, I think the the supermarkets will will control a lot of that product coming in, as they did with the New Zealand product. Now, logic says it makes sense to chase a cheaper product. Why do you choose to go locally, like you do? Um, because it's 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 our industry. We, we, we're protecting, uh, you know, jobs, um, uh, you know, sustainability with 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 the way that we operate in our, in our local industry. I mean, our industries are very heavily regulated, and they're they're um, you know, it's, it's a much better product. Um, it's better for for the environment, better for us here, um, and we we choose to to support you know local because um, we need the jobs. We need to you know the, the circle of life. <laughs> needs to keep going and we need to keep going here in Australia rather than uh, bringing it in from, from overseas. I mean, we've got you know, some of the best produce in the world. So why would we go looking for American apples when we've got you know some of the best apples in the world you know, from the Mornington Peninsula, from Tasmania, um, you know, from some of the best food-growing regions in the world? Some growers are understandably pretty pretty nervous from this announcement and, and we've had people saying... On the record, they're, they're worried that people will exit the industry. What would that mean for wholesalers such as yourselves that source stuff oh, locally? That, that would be devastating uh, because we, we bank on, on the local product. We bank on the local industry. And, um, 
and that would be yeah terrible for us. It would create a whole because then the pricing structure would be different. You know, the whole the way we do business, the way we bring the product in, the freshness of it, the, the quality. Yeah, it would be it would be a devastating situation for for for, for us. I think if that happened, yeah. You mentioned that maybe producers should be doing more to advertise their their products. Could you explain that a bit more? Yeah, look, I, I think that um, I think we need to be um, yeah advertising or promoting our our local products, our, our local areas uh, of where we're producing you know the the apples. You know, so so um, yeah, letting people know that the, the new varieties that the you know, the Australians are putting out. Um, you know, spending more time on that, I think we've, especially let's use the apple as an example because that's what I'm talking about. I mean, the apple industry hasn't really spent a lot of money lately um, on on advertising and putting themselves forward. I mean, avocados. Look at what the avocado campaign did. You know that they're still doing it. Um, you know, so bananas are doing the same sort of similar campaign, but apples. They've sort of um, people expect that people are going to eat apples, but I think they need to sort of lift their profile a bit. Um, and, and come together as a group and, and promote the, the the Australian apple, the Australian product. So I think it's time that we um, that, that, that we yeah we did speak out as a nation, um, and as a consumer, um, and and said you know sort of said no to these to the governments that are you know trying to build these these um, you know commercial dealings with you know, and we're trying to get trade going with, with, with other nations like America and with New Zealand and, and we're trying to do that sort of stuff but, but to the detriment of our product. I mean, we we can't send stuff overseas the same way that we take stuff here. I mean, have a look at some of the products that we're trying to send overseas that, that get stopped at borders and we get double checked. You know, we need to be stronger in, 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 in what we have here. We've got an amazing you know capacity to produce food and uh, we need to be tougher. I'm bringing this sort of stuff into our to our country. I think we need to promote promote Aussie um, as much as we can. It's Fred Pezzamenti from Simply Fresh Fruit in Melbourne. He's a wholesaler speaking there with Meg Powell. His thoughts on the prospect of fresh US apples coming into Australia. Jane from Hobart on the text line says, I would not buy American apples. The supermarkets will lap them up. 0438922936, that text line number still to come on the country are marketing agricultural careers to school students, so check on the livestock markets. And we'll also have a look at the latest on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Will Murray. G'day, Tony. Tasmanian MP Andrew Wilkie says changes to betting advertising are a fraction of what's needed to tackle problem gambling. The federal government will soon force online betting companies to include new warnings about the risks of gambling across radio, online and TV advertising. Mr Wilkie says while the government deserves some credit, measures such as linking daily limits across all online gambling companies are needed. Water and power supplies have been restored in the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv following a wave of Russian attacks on infrastructure. Moscow yesterday launched dozens of missiles targeting critical facilities. Officials say at one point 80% of the capital had no running water and hundreds of thousands of homes were left without electricity. And food writer Julie Powell, who authored the best-selling book Julie and Julia, has died aged 49. Her blog led to a book deal and a film adaptation starring Amy Adams rather and Meryl Streep. US media say Powell died of a cardiac arrest at her home in New York. And Michael Della Fontana will have more news at one. Thanks, Will. 
Time now to check the latest on the weather. Let's say good day to Alex Melitsis from the Bureau. Hello, Alex. Good day, Tony. It is like a winter's day out there. It certainly is. It's very, very wintry conditions uh, with temperatures generally sort of five to six degrees uh, below average. And we currently have a cold west to southwesterly airstream across the state, and that's bringing frequent showers into the west and south of Tasmania, and just the odd little shower or two getting across uh, most other other parts. We've even seen hail about the west and around Hobart uh, this morning. So wintry conditions are continuing. Um, With those showers and hail we had yesterday, we saw around uh, a few sort of two to 10 to 15 millimetres across much of the state, uh, particularly in the west. So in the 24 hours to 9am this morning, the highest rainfall recorded was uh, 13 millimetres at Henty Canal in the west and also at above Avoca in the east. Uh, Since 9am this morning, we've reported about... uh, four four to six millimetres into much of the west uh, with the highest rainfall of seven millimetres at Mount Reed. And how cold did it get overnight? Yeah, it got pretty cold. Um, Some of the coldest temperatures we reported was at Lyoweenie. And um, if I just find that one out, that was minus 3.4 Oh, two, minus 2.5 on top of um, Lyoweenie there. And uh, Grove got down to 0.2 and Launceston Airport got down to 0.9 degrees. So a pretty cold morning, uh, but luckily it looks like this has been the coldest morning we've seen, or we will see for the next week. So hopefully uh, not much frost around or anything for the next seven days. Okay, give me some good news, Alex. Well, first of all, the the bad news is that we have a cold front crossing uh, this afternoon and evening. So we'll see a cold front reach the southwest uh, at around 3pm this afternoon, probably reaching Hobart by around 5 or 6pm and then crossing the remainder of the state this evening. And that'll bring a burst of shower activity to much of the state. Uh, Again, we're not expecting too much uh, shower activity into the uh, north and east with that front. Uh, And then tomorrow morning, uh, in the wake of that front, it'll be pretty cold again. Uh, Again, we're not expecting those minimum temperatures to be as cold tomorrow as they were this morning, but we could see snowfall down to around 800 metres overnight tonight and into the wee hours of uh, tomorrow morning. So we do have a sheep graziers warning out for the northwest uh, Upper Derwent Valley, Midlands and southeast districts for those cold temperatures tonight and early tomorrow morning. But then things start to moderate pretty quickly. So tomorrow we're expecting um, those fresh, cold and gusty west to southwesterlies to prevail and showers about the west, south and the Bastrade Islands with uh, possible morning uh, hail. But tomorrow elsewhere it shouldn't, it shouldn't actually be too bad at all, uh, mainly fine with some sunny periods. Then on Friday, we see a high-pressure uh, ridge move over Victoria, and that'll start to bring some warmer northwesterly winds across uh, across Tasmania, as well as some uh, more settled conditions. So it generally should be fine for much of the state on Friday, apart from just some light showers about the west and far south, uh, and they should clear in the afternoon. We're expecting less than two millimetres of rainfall on Friday. Then on Saturday, that high-pressure system establishes to the over the Tasman Island to the northeast of Tassie, and that'll um, maintain warmer uh, northwesterlies across the state uh, throughout Saturday and Sunday, and we'll also see those warmer conditions as well. So should be mainly fine on Saturday and Sunday, perhaps just the odd little light shower or two around, uh, mainly in the west and far south. And then just looking a bit beyond that, um, it looks like next week we actually go back into those uh, sort of north to northeasterly winds that we had for parts of October there. So much warmer weather expected next week, much above average, with temperatures generally into the low to mid, uh, mid-20s for much of next week.
Okay, sounds good. Uh, but we do have some warnings, don't we? That's right. So as I said, we had that uh, sheep graziers warning uh, for those areas, uh, for those cold conditions tonight and early tomorrow. Uh, and then if you're going boating today, we have a strong wind warning out for all uh, Tasmanian coastal waters. That includes Storm Bay and the Channel. And then tomorrow, uh, we have a strong wind warning out for all uh, coastal waters, and that includes all the southeast inshore waters. Uh, in terms of uh, flood warnings, we currently have a minor flood warning for the Macquarie, Meander and the North Esk rivers. Okay, Alex, and uh, out on the waters, coastal waters and swell, what's happening? Yep, so we've got these fresh west to southwesterlies for, for the next couple of days. So um, if you are going boating tomorrow, we have a west to southwesterly winds of around 20 to 30 knots, and we'll see seas of around 2 to 3 metres. Swell tomorrow in the west and south, we're expecting a southwesterly swell of 3 to 4 metres. That's expected to reach 5 metres in the south uh, tomorrow afternoon and evening. In the north, we've got a westerly swell to around one metre, and in the east tomorrow, a southerly swell of around one to two metres, tending southwesterly three to four metres offshore in the south. And currently, the uh, Cape Sorrel Wave Rider buoy is currently sitting on around uh, three and a half metres. That's a significant wave height of three and a half metres, and that's a southwesterly with a period of around 13 seconds. And then in the east, the Mariah Island Wave Rider buoy is currently sitting on around one and a half metres. And that's a south to southeasterly with a period of around 10 seconds. Good on you, Alex. Thanks for that. Thanks, Tony. See you later. Alex Melitzis from the Bureau with the latest information for you. A couple of uh, calls on the text line. I'm confused. Thought we needed to reduce food miles to save the planet. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, Unnamed texter. I won't buy American fruit, too many chemicals, etc. on it. Our produce far superior. Thanks for that, Tina. Uh, and we have, hey, Tony, USA apples as fresh and seasonal will therefore be only available in the Australian winter, correct? Uh, at that time, we cannot purchase fresh Aussie apples. So what's the problem? Well, yeah, we can because, um, you know, if you handle them properly and store them properly, you can have apples all year round. They will last and... Uh, yeah, they might be saying that they're coming over here because that's when they pick them and they're fresh. But you can rest assured once they get into the country, they'll have them here year round. Uh, and also, what, have we, what else have we got here? Having just read this week's edition of Pearl's Irritations, it would appear that America knows no bounds. Thanks for that, John, on the text line 0438 922 We'll change the subject in uh, just a moment. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. To agriculture as a career, there's something like 170,000 jobs available in Australian agriculture right now. But often ag doesn't get a look in with careers advisors in high schools. That's where the Primary Industries Education Foundation is stepping in with more programs to help drive the food and fibre in the classroom. His CEO, Luciano Messiti, chatting to Larissa Smith. Farmer Time is an international program that's based on the concept of a virtual farm tour. So wherever you are in the classroom, you can engage with a producer or anyone along the supply chain. And so I guess given the, the COVID and remote learning, we, we've got this product which allowed us to get into the classrooms, even though students couldn't go on an excursion into you know wherever it might be it, it, it gave us the ability to expand that we have a range of resources that go with that and what we offer to teachers is it's not just about talking to a farmer for half an hour it's about 
There's a set of lessons that are curriculum linked that link in to that farmer time experience. So it's also breaking down those barriers in terms of what is agriculture because essentially what we're trying to encourage young people to think about is careers in agriculture as the output of our engagement um, and passion and interest in where their food comes from but essentially breaking down those barriers about what is agriculture. So the stereotype is old man on a tractor and I think we've got to better engage with young people and parents, because parents are a big influence here, uh, and teachers as well, about what does agriculture mean. There's figures around that say 80% of agriculture happens once the product leaves the farm gate. There's um, about 35% of jobs are in capital cities. National Farmers Federation recently released some data to say there's 170,000 jobs available in agriculture today. We have a lot of work to do, and I guess um, PIFA has a number of programs to try and engage with schools and students and get them interested and passionate. It's a collective effort. And it's challenging too because there are so many pressures placed on teachers today to get through so much content within that school year. So what are you doing differently to wrap everything up neatly that can be taught in classrooms without adding to their workload. Absolutely. So everything that we do is curriculum linked. So um, a teacher has to follow the curriculum. We have more and more teachers who are not trained in, say, teaching agriculture or are, um, are not familiar with food and fibre curriculum. And so we have um, teacher professional development programs to support those teachers. We're developing what what we class as incursions and pre-recorded lessons so that teachers can play a pre-recorded lesson in the classroom uh, and and still engage the students through that with associated resources that go with that. So we're really targeting to the needs of teachers. Teachers don't have time, trying to really fashion those programs to the needs of teachers so they don't have to work hard. Cameron Archer, you've been with PIFA since its inception. Do you think attitudes towards teaching agriculture in the classroom have changed and they've improved for the better? I'd like to think so. I think we have we work, work very hard on that. Yes, I think there's a greater openness now to teach about food and fibre agriculture, forestry, fisheries, than there was in the past. But I think that's probably due to the work we've done both in the curriculum and supporting and advising the curriculum uh, writers to get a good balance in those areas, but also the resources are there for the teaching. But also I think the other thing, people are now aware of food security and uh, the importance of us feeding ourselves in this country and also exporting food. So I think there's a greater awareness and understanding than there used to be. Hopefully PIFA's played a role in that, but PIFA's been there to pick up that that thinking and move with it and um, that's what we have to keep doing and the COVID's sort of created a whole lot of new situations which we're working with and the enormous skill shortages that there, it's very competitive out there for staff and uh, competitive for organisations for enrolments in their courses and that's where we do so much work with careers and at the end of school but we do so much early on in the school um, schools, children's life, so they, they're aware of what opportunities are around in, in agriculture. What about teaching agriculture? How much of a role does PIFA play in promoting a, a teaching career within ag? 
would like to do much more there because there's a great shortage of agricultural teachers. It's high on our, our agenda to look for funds to do that because we get funded by grants and also from our member base. And we work with closely with the agricultural teachers associations around Australia and they're, they're really a partner with us and they do great work. But there is an enormous shortage of agricultural teachers. So we're looking to support teachers moving from teaching in other areas into agriculture <laughs> and, yeah. and, and giving that support, see? So that's sometimes they get, to, they get asked to teach and they, they don't, they've never taught it. So that's the important thing that we do too. In that, in that case, what's complex is that each state has their own accreditation system for, for teachers and therefore it really comes down to the requirements of the Department of Education and the universities providing the, um, the training to make that very transparent because a lot of teachers find it difficult to find out information about the pathways to lead to retraining or even training to be an ag teacher. We're on a journey at the moment to make that whole picture clear. I guess that's why it's really lovely to be here at Hagley to see uh, what's happening here and, and, and how good the relationships here are with industry and also what a great role Hagley School Farm plays. For, for the community of Tasmania, like all the other school farms, because it, it, these are iconic places. This is an iconic place in agricultural education here at Hagley, but, and also the fact that the Tasmanian government has supported school farms right across Tasmania is, is something to be really proud of, and we, we're delighted to see that happen. So uh, I think Tasmania can take a bow on this because they're, they're a leader. Any, people in agricultural education come from anywhere in the world and see what's happening here, they'd say, wow, how about that? I wish we could do that where we are. Andrew Archer and Luciano Masiti from Primary Industries Education Foundation Australia talking there to Larissa Smith. Well, sometimes it is challenging convincing young people to consider a career in ag, especially if they don't have a farming background. Climate advocate and youth mentor Toby Thorpe has his finger on the pulse when it comes to what young people think about the environment and natural resources. He reckons the sector needs to do more to sell its story. I think, you know, always as a young person, whether it be in 2022 or 1922, the career you choose is based off your your values of wanting to make a difference or contribute to something positive and leave the world better than it was yesterday. And I think that is incredibly more present today, not saying it wasn't present in the past, but more present today. Um, Because when we look at the world where there are large social issues of inequality, modern warfare, climate change, young people visualise this very well. You know, that's the influence of social media, modern media, uh, and they want to contribute to positively impact the world and solve these big issues that sometimes are thrown under the carpet. And when we look at a Tasmanian sense, there are sectors that are excelling. We're a renewable energy powerhouse in Tasmania and everyone knows that story because we're very proud of that and we're very proud of the fact that we're leading the world and contributing positively to reducing our carbon emissions. That comes from a sector leadership in actually owning the solutions to climate change and the electrification of a power grid. I think for young people now, where they look at industries like agriculture or horticulture or forestry, in today's sense, is that they can't visualise that. And they visualise the past of chopping down a tree or an environmental movement that has you know, created a derogatory sort of sense in terms of a reputation of the industry. And it's really hard to shift that around, but also for a lot of people, including my dad, 
it's hard to turn around from that as well. Because um, your, your dad lost his job. Exactly. He did lose his job and our family were displaced out of Tasmania um, into Western Australia where he worked in the mining industry. So sometimes it's a little bit odd that I've become a climate advocate after you know that sort of parental influence. But at the very core of being Tasmanian is you care about the environment and that's what I try and say all the time is no matter what you do, what sector you work in, what your political views are, you actually care and you can't lie to me because if you tell me you're not, that's exactly lying because you're Tasmanian. What will it take or what can it take to turn those perspectives around and, and get young people into forestry, into aquaculture and agriculture? Courage. You know, it's, I said it before, it's very hard to, to come back from a history of sour sort of contributions in local communities across Tasmania. So it is going to take courage to come out and say, you know what, we're going to contribute to these really big issues and tear down some walls that are still standing, but also find finding your story in how you're contributing positively to the world and owning that and being proud of that and also investing in sharing that story, going into schools, teaching young people, uh, taking the time to go speak to someone that has a complete opposite opinion to you um, because just because they don't disagree doesn't mean they don't have valid points for you to consider. And, and looking outside regional areas that aren't necessarily associated with an industry. I mean, I think it also comes down to open mindfulness. You know, you can visualise impacts on industries outside of, you know, in urban areas you can visualise the impact on renewable energy or energy sectors because you see that every day. But you need to take that personal investment and that personal courage to actually look at what other sectors and industries have to offer as well. Not saying that every industry is perfect, because it's not, but we get to better, better our outcomes and better our sector leadership by working together, and that takes everybody to be involved from both sides and the willingness from both sides. So if you do live in an urban area and you feel that you're out of touch with regional rural areas across Tasmania and Australia and the world in the sectors that matter to them, the industries that matter to them that really drive their communities, go out, explore, and most of the time people that work there are going to introduce you with open arms because they're incredibly passionate about what they do. What's next on the horizon for you? Planning to head to Sharm El Sheikh in Egypt for COP27, which is um, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change annual meeting where they negotiate international law like the Paris Agreement, Kyoto Protocol, which governs, you know, all these things. And you've also been involved in this Emerging Leaders Program, so that must be rewarding to take so many young people under your wing and, and watch them grow as, as individuals as well. Yeah, and that's another common thing in Tasmania that may may relate to how we're we're retracting away from actually carrying talent from our own local young people. Is that young people in Tasmania feel like the world's up against them? Growing up in regional rural Tas, I grew up in the Huon Valley at a public school, and you always felt that doing these big things was not possible. You had to go to a, a private school in the city, or you had to leave Tasmania to go and achieve these things, and that tells a lot about opportunity for sector to go in and actually invest in emerging leaders here in Tasmania um, because there are young people in every corner of the state that want to contribute, that have the ability and the capacity to contribute incredibly positive outcomes to Tasmanian economy but feel as if they can't achieve that and that's something I deal with every single day. It's why I'm doing all these things like you know, getting involved in politics at 20 years, 20 years old or focusing on making sure that my story is told rather than building a career myself is because there are other young people out there that want to contribute, that just need the door open. As Toby Thorpe, a climate advocate and newly elected Huon Valley Deputy Mayor, 20 years old, he's about to head off to Egypt for the COP27 Climate Summit. 
And talking about young people, he was talking there to Larissa Smith, by the way, but talking about young people uh, considering a career in agriculture, a fifth-generation farmer from Bowen with a passion for ag tech has been named the Minister's Emerging Leader Award winner at the overnight Queensland Agriculture Awards. 24-year-old Jessica Jurgens of VJ's Calfresh will receive a $3,000 bursary to use for further study or work. She tells Kelly Buchanan she was not expecting her name to be called. I was very shocked and very honoured. It is a privilege to be recognised for some of the things that we are we are doing behind the curtains. I know as agricultural people, sometimes we aren't the best at expressing, expressing those small little things that we do every day to make a big difference. Now you're fifth generation, you said. Yeah. Why did you stick with it? Why did you go into ag? Well, my parents are definitely my role models in life. The way they just handle every situation, like weather, COVID, everything that's throughout them, just shows the resilience that agriculture has built in them. And if one day I get to do that for my children, I hope, I hope that's it. And I hope also to mentor other people in the, in the surrounding communities to help encourage them into agriculture because it is such an amazing industry. Do you think it has a lot to offer young people? Definitely. The amount of ag tech that's coming out at the moment that I'm very, very excited about. I hope that it encourages other young tech-minded people that may not be in the ag industry to join. What's next for you? Um, I guess I, I didn't think that far ahead just yet. <laughs> <laughs> you're still a little bit shocked that yeah, you're, you're taking that home. I'm very shocked. Um, but there were so many amazing nominees there, so yeah, definitely very shocked. But um, I think I'd just like to... Our small little community in Bowen is definitely something I'm going to give back to to try and support those younger kids like myself and encourage them back into the industry. How's the season looking in Bowen at the moment? How's the farm? Oh, um, we've had some pretty serious storms come through in the last few weeks, so the farm isn't as glamorous as what it usually looks like, but it's going to round up to be a nice season, I think. And for a young person listening to this, what would you say to them if they're considering ag as their life's calling? I think there's a, a lot of ag companies like ourselves that are just keen to give any young person a go and you'll find your right fit. There'll be people there that are willing to mentor you into a space that's just, just right for you. So I think just give it a go. It's 24-year-old Jessica Jurgens from VJ's Calfresh in Bowen, winner of the Minister's Emerging Leader Award, speaking there too. Callie Buchanan overnight, another success story. Uh, Alastair from Sanford says, Tony, we have been selling the agricultural story since I was state advisor and head of the Sheffield Ag School. We need programs included in the national curriculum and get the emphasis out of primary and into high schools and colleges as well. Cheers, Alastair. Thank you for that, Alastair. 0438922936, that text line number. Well, it's that time of the day on uh, Wednesday afternoon. Time to check out the livestock markets and say good day to Richard Bailey. How are you, Richard? Going very well, Tony, very well. Little, we had a little bit of a frost this morning. Yeah. Um, I, I, a couple of the cars in the street had fairly severe ice on them. Yeah. It's late in the year to be getting frost, but anyway. No, nice and nippy in areas, but um, it's going to warm up and we might get some uh, sunshine for a few days, which is uh, which is good, although the showers are expected, expected to hang about. But, yeah, um, they, the whole talk around the yard yesterday was how wet it is and, you know, um, people thinking of, of cutting silage crops and things like that are going to, you know, really going to struggle. In fact, I heard of a couple of blokes yesterday that have actually turned cattle in on paddocks that were going to be silage. So a um, bit of a challenge in front of them. And I think up north, uh, talking to the guys in Queensland yesterday, a lot of the grain growers are screaming they just can't get anywhere near their crops. But on the other hand to that, 
it's better than a drought. Yeah, much better. Okay, yep. now cattle numbers at Powerina, how were they? Yeah, no, pretty small. Uh, very strong yearling market. Yearlings made anywhere from 480 to 504 cents a kilo. Restockers and butchers uh, buying there. They were yeah very, very strong. Probably as good a market as we've seen, I reckon, in a long time. Uh, there was one bullock, and he made 462 cents. He was a good bullock. Um, a few better cows, uh, the better heavy cows made 3.52 to 3.56 cents a kilo, which is a few cents better than last week, but the cows were better. And the smaller cows, 3.30 to 3.38 cents a kilo. Uh, we've got a store cattle sale coming up on the 24th of this month, which is, what, three weeks away? And um, no doubt there'll be some, should be some reasonable lines of cattle there. I would think we're starting to get through the season pretty well. You think the numbers will pick up in the next few weeks as it gets warmer, as it hopefully gets warmer? Yeah, you would think so. It's interesting. I was talking in my figures from last last year. We swung over to new seasons lambs next week last year. Well, we're I reckon we're a good three weeks away from getting any. We had a few new seasons for the first time yesterday, but you know that just goes to show how far behind we are season-wise. Yeah, exactly. All right, talking lambs and uh, sheep. What happened? We had a thousand and seventy-one lambs, which is almost three hundred more than last week. Very, very mixed. And, you know, you expect that at this time of the year. Uh, there were, for the first time, some new season's lambs in the market, 51 of them. They made 154 to 174, and one pen went back to the paddock at $135 a head. But most of the old season's lambs were considerably cheaper, anywhere from sort of 20 to $30 cheaper. Uh, there were a couple of exceptions, but just generally speaking, that was the case. The better lambs made anywhere from 150 to $182. Trey lambs 118 to 152. Now, there's a big range there, but there was a big range of lambs. Um, the better better finished lambs uh, created some competition, but the others, not much interest at all. And most of them then going to that Middle East trade where they don't care if they uh, haven't got much on them. Uh, light trade lambs anywhere from 85 to 138, same as a big range there. And then restockers, they just bought lambs, light lambs, anywhere from sort of 54 to $100 a head. Look, it's getting to the stage where they don't really want them either. So be interesting to see when you get a few more new season's lambs around how strong that store market is. Yeah. What about mutton? Uh, 925 mutton. Uh, this market was, generally speaking, very similar, except for the middle-range sheep, the medium-range sheep that were a bit dearer. Very heavy sheep made 130 to $134. Heavy 105 to 132 then medium weights, 118 to 126. They were the sheep that were dearer, and they sold to a bit bit more competition there. And then some very light sheep went back to the paddock, 59 to 64 dollars a head. Okay, Richard, we'll talk mainland uh, markets when we talk Friday. Good on you, Tony. Yeah, Richard, back with us on Friday. ABC Rural is a place to go if you want more stories. Online, there is a story about the shortage of potatoes and a couple of photos of uh, very soggy potato fields. Have a look at ABC Rural Online. Don't forget our Facebook page as well. And we will catch you after midday tomorrow.